I often thought, gee, I could be on an assembly line somewhere and get enlightened because it looks like the same thing if I did it right. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. For this group, uh, it has two purposes really. One purpose is the building of Sangha, that there's just a uh, a special and and supportive kind of energy that uh, develops as we come and sit together. It develops by getting to know one another, even in the short time of tea break or getting a ride here with someone. And it develops simply in the fact of being together as we sit and somehow establishing with our our minds and our hearts and our bodies, at least once a week, a kind of communion in silence, which is that we pay attention and listen inside, um, listen to our hearts, listen to our bodies, and begin through that attention to cultivate a more balanced and hopefully wiser or kinder relationship to ourselves and the world around us. Beside building Sangha, it's also a kind of an picker-upper or an inspiration. There are talks that I've done for the past five weeks on the steps of the Eightfold Path, and I'll continue it tonight, in relation to the practice that we might do as householders, as people living in the world. And so tonight's talk is on what's called right livelihood. So far we started with right understanding, the first step, and spoke very much about the importance of spiritual practice in one's life. That if we look at the time we die, if we look back and ask ourselves what really mattered, there aren't very many questions that we'll come to ask. Maybe just one or two. Did I live well? Or better yet, did I love well? Maybe that's all that will have mattered to us. And so the importance of a spiritual practice is to begin to live as if we knew what we're going to know when we die or what we're going to ask. And then the next week we talked about right attitude for practice, which was both an openness of mind and heart, an exploration, a discovery. And secondly, a willingness to renounce our habits in some fashion, to be, to be willing to work and not just take everything um, for convenience or because it's easy or it's our habit, to look at some new way of being in the world or to look more deeply. Then the Eightfold Path goes on to describe three aspects of what's called virtue or uprightness of heart. And that is uh, right speech, using speech to become more conscious, to uh, awaken in ourselves to what's true, so our words come from truth, um, and as a way to bring uh, help, compassion, and awareness to people around us, because speech is so powerful. 
right action, which we spoke of last week, uh, paying attention to our our deeds in the world and having them based on compassion or non-harming and on awakening. Now finally, the third of the steps of virtue, right livelihood. And what's interesting, virtue is so is so infrequently spoken of in our culture in our modern California culture anyway, because it's Victorian and old and repressive. And it needn't be any of those things. Virtue is, on one level, a training. It's learning to speak, to act in our sexual life, in our, our business life, in our family life, um, to train to act more consciously, more mindfully, more, more compassionately. And it takes practice. It is also, quite wonderfully, an expression of our awakening. It's the foundation of our awakening. You can't awaken if you're involved in killing, lying, stealing, or even um, more subtle levels of it. It's hard to pay attention. Your mind is caught up and busy and worried and paranoid. So it's a foundation for a clear mind. And the training of it is a foundation for being more mindful. But even more, more beautifully, it's the expression of an awakened heart, an awakened mind. So what is right livelihood? I want to say some things about it without defining it completely. Um, I'll say a lot of things. And they're, they're traditional teachings and some contemporary associations. And then maybe we could take a little time for discussion, especially if I get through them in, in relatively uh, reasonably reasonable time. I remember going to a conference recently with the Reverend Cecil Williams. I don't know how many of you ever watched him on TV, but he's great. The black minister of the Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco, who's done all kinds of very wonderful projects in the, in the community and in the state for, for years. And he got up and he spoke. It didn't come from his head. He spoke the way... Um, Many black ministers are able to do partly through the culture that that allows it or embodies it, but his voice and his being it came from really deep. It was like, and he said he said to people, "What what you need to learn is you need to learn about love." And he put it out in such a powerful way. And he said, "What I'm talking about is not what love you get, but how much love you give." And he said it over and over in this speech in that kind of repetitive way of a, of a preacher. And it was so beautiful. He kept saying it in different ways. It's not how much love you get, it's how much you give. I could just end the talk right now. <laughs> it's not very complicated. It's really quite beautiful. So what is right livelihood? Right livelihood, like the rest of the of these aspects of the Eightfold Path are a path to become happier in our lives and to become enlightened or awakened. There are five aspects. The first is non-harming. And the traditional non-harming means not to take a livelihood that involves weapons or exploitation or drugs or things that hurt people. Not much to say more about it. You can look at it in your life and look at it in the society around. And where you see it's done, 
If you don't do it, great. And if you see other people doing it, and there's a way that you can help it not to happen, do it. It's pretty simple. That's non-harming. There's an appropriate happiness, the second part of right livelihood. In appropriate happiness, there's a sutra from the Buddha that talked about appropriate happiness and right livelihood, is first in having. It's essential to have a trade or a career, even if you change it five times in your life, that doesn't matter. But to feel decent about yourself, it's really important or helpful, I don't care what, how much money you have or what you have to do or don't have to do, to have some way of contributing to society, because you're not happy if you don't contribute. So to find a trade or a livelihood or a career, and it maybe you use it for a while and then you change it, but there's a happiness or a joy in having a career or having work that one can do. And if you haven't found it, it's a really crucial part of spiritual practice to look for it. And it doesn't mean it's going to be some big special thing. There's a kind of mythology in our country that is false that tells you you can have whatever job you want. Anyone who grows up here can be president, God spare you. And <laughs> that um, you will find just the right job and it will make you happy. That is the perfect job for you, the one where your creativity and your all your talents are used and so forth. That is the same American myth like the one of the perfect relationship. Okay, I don't know how many of you are still looking for that. Is there anyone who hasn't gotten that one yet? Okay, you got that one. It's true about jobs, too. There is not the perfect job. I had the perfect job. Traveling around the world to glamorous places, getting a lot of um, care and respect, relating to people in issues of dharma and meditation, sitting together, it was really wonderful. I got tired sometimes. People came and they called me in the middle of the night. There were things I didn't like about it. Plus which, I couldn't have a house and I didn't settle down until recently. So I gave it up to teach in a different way because it wasn't as perfect as I thought it would be. It seemed perfect. It was wonderful. There is no perfect relationship and there's no perfect job. Find one or something and really give yourself to it. That's a happiness. Secondly, there's a happiness in, in producing from the job, which is to make money, basically. It's both producing goods or service for other people, which we'll get to, but it's in, in having things and using them. And as householders, money is necessary, and it's fine, and that's part of our, our dharma, of our way of being in the world. Um, and to have a career or to find some way to work even if it's your career for the year or several years, and then to use it to create a home or to create the financial things that are appropriate for you is great. It's really wonderful. And using means um, also, in terms of being happy, there's a wide range. It can be using in a very simple way or can be using in a more extravagant way. You're not so happy if it's based on a lot of indulgence. Not that you shouldn't do it, you're welcome to try it. But the people that I know for, who've tried it for a while find it not so satisfying. So there's a happiness in having a career and work and in producing and using the things that come from it, including one's money. The third happiness is to be free from debt. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good one for our country, isn't it? It's funny, it was said 2,500 years ago. It seems to still be true. Because you worry, and you're anxious, and you strive, and you struggle, and it really has to do with contentment. To see if you can learn fundamentally or basically to live within your means. I'm just going to put this stuff out about right livelihood. You can do what you want with it. And it's not commandments or anything like that. It's suggestions. It says wake up to these different areas of your life. That you're happier if you live within your means and that people who don't find themselves not happy. And frankly, if you've ever lived in a third world country or some simple situation for a while, you discover you don't need one quarter of what you think you do to be happy. You can live with a lot less than you think you can. And you can be as happy watching a sunset or taking a walk as going and having an extravagant night out on the town. If you know how to relate to those things. So the third is freedom from debt in having and using and being free from debt. And the fourth is free from blame or fault in your livelihood and your work. That you do it not to please the world around you or because of what people will think, but you let it somehow come from inside. That what you choose and where your actions come from, come not from how they look, because after a while you get caught in, by that and you get into pain and sorrow. But that you start to reference inwardly to what matters or what you care about and let that affect your livelihood and your work. So the first aspect of right livelihood is non-harming. The second is appropriate happiness, the happiness of having, of using, of being free from debt, and free from blame or fault by, by listening to your heart. The third is growth in awareness, that you can use your livelihood to grow in consciousness. You know, it's so interesting. We get very identified with our jobs in this country. You meet someone, and one of the first things we ask is, well, what do you do? You know, that's what we want to know about somebody. Oh, I'm a psychologist, I'm a meditation teacher, I'm a nurse, I'm a librarian, I'm a, um, a waitress, I'm a... You're all therapists, I know, and we're in, but I'm a... Whatever it happens to be, I'm a businessman. Um, okay. It's so interesting when you go to India, nobody ever asks you what you do. It's a very different culture. And as far as I can tell in India, nobody does anything, you know? And so you meet someone, and there's this Baba kind of sitting at the tea stand, and he's been there for a while, and you talk to them. So you, and they don't ask you what you do. They might ask you what form of God you worship. You know, is it Krishna or Shiva or Kali or Durga or, or, or Buddha or whoever it happens to be. But it's not a big thing in that culture what you do. It's much more maybe how many children you have, or what form of God you worship. So, but it's a big thing for us, what do you do? So it's what we, we choose in this particular drama. We pick to be born in America somehow. We say, all right, I'll sign up for one there. And then in the script of living in America, it's what you do is a big thing. Okay, so do something decent, all right? <laughs> it's not... It's, uh, but it's important to remember... It's important to remember that it's part of the theater. So growth and awareness, the first thing is that you don't need to be too identified with what you do. You think what we do is who we are. When you die, ain't going to be who you are. 
you're going to be something else or when you get sick or when things change around or or I don't know when the earthquake comes or whatever what you do ain't going to matter a lot and so it's something that you do but then you can do it instead in a spirit of adventure or a dance or or an exploration Don Juan he's talking to Carlos Castaneda about the qualities of being a, a warrior in this place he's training him to be a hunter a hunter in, in the wilds, but also a hunter of knowledge. He said, I've told you already that to be inaccessible as a hunter does not mean to, be, to hide or be secretive. It doesn't mean that you cannot deal with people either. A hunter uses their world sparingly and with tenderness, regardless of whether the world might be things or plants or animals or people or power. A hunter deals intimately with their world, and yet they remain inaccessible to that same world. And Carlos, as usual, says, I don't understand. There's a contradiction. It makes no sense. How, how can you be inaccessible if you're there in your world day after day? You did not understand, said Don Juan patiently. A hunter is inaccessible because they're not squeezing their world out of shape. They tap it lightly, stay for as long as they need to, and then move away, leaving hardly a mark. What a lovely way to think of it. It's to live lightly on the earth, to take what we do and use it and care for it, to be tender, to be careful with it, but not to get so identified or so caught up in it. Now, there are a lot of ways that one can begin to bring awareness to one's work. They're the simple ones of exercises. For example, Gurdjieff used to use training, awareness training exercises where he'd tell people to do things in a different way than they were used to. Tie your shoes and do the bow around the other direction. Or open your car door with your left hand instead of your right hand. And let it be a signal for, for a little while, maybe for two minutes, that you're going to wake up. You'll go off automatic pilot and be conscious as the door opens, as you sit down in the car, and you begin to drive. It becomes a meditation. Bring that kind of thing into your work. Do things a little different. Do them backwards. Use your meditative awareness or mindfulness to start to make the work that you do a meditation. And I've often thought, that one could really, especially after all these hours of training in monasteries where you just walk back and forth doing walking meditation and you sit down and you walk some more, I often thought, gee, I could be on an assembly line somewhere and get enlightened because it looks like the same thing if I did it right. If just, and I worked on an assembly line once at the Beacon Gauge Company, putting these screws in this little part into uh, gauges. And it was not very different than what I did in the monastery. Except, of course, that everybody there was resenting being there and waiting for their paycheck, you know, or stoned out on quaaludes or whatever got them through the day. But growth in awareness means that we can begin to use our work, whatever it is, to wake up, to awaken. To do that requires some discipline. And for many people, it requires a lot of discipline and a lot of repetition. There's a, let me see, I think I'll tell this ter terrible joke just to get it out of my system. Um, there's an old Jewish lady riding in a train compartment, and she's sleeping, <laughs> sleeping there on the, the uh, top bunk, and the bottom bunk of the train compartment is this nice man who's trying to sleep. 
and she's there, and they close the door in the compartment, the train's rattling along, and every few minutes she says, Oi, am I toasty? And the guy's falling asleep, and he's just about to go to sleep, and then, Oi, am I toasty? Wakes him up again, starts to fall asleep. Oi, am I toasty? And it just goes on and on like this. The guy can't stand it. Finally, he gets out of bed, goes down the little hall on the train, gets one of those paper cups, fills it up with uh, water, brings it back to the lady. Oh, thank you, thank you. She's so grateful. He lies back down. He gets up. Finally, I can sleep. <sighs> Just about to fall asleep, and he hears, Oi, was I toasty? <laughs> <laughs> now, I've gotten that out of my system. It has something I'm not quite sure what to do with. <laughs> Discipline and repetition in work. Most every kind of work that you do, whether it's as an artist even, or as a therapist, or as a, um, as a mechanic, or uh, whatever kind of business thing that you do, will have repetition and boredom, and, and what way to react is to, is to put yourself on automatic pilot and go to sleep. And sometimes that's useful. I'm not saying that it, automatic pilot doesn't have its place in our life. But it's possible to begin to use it more as a discipline, to begin to awaken in some fashion, to be willing to take it as your meditation. So I ask you a question now to reflect. What could you do in your work more meditatively? Or how could you bring more mindfulness into the particular work that you do? And you can start to look at that, and it might be in little ways of how you open the door. It might be in ways where you take a pause between people you see and promise yourself that you'll just sit there at your desk or at your place for a minute or five between people that you deal with and get centered again on your breath. It might be in regard to this next thing, or the next two things of right livelihood, which I'll come to. Okay, so first was non-harming. The second was appropriate happiness. The third is beginning to use it to wake up. You can do walking meditation. You can work with your breath. You can do meditation as a mechanic. You can do meditation as a, as a doctor or a nurse. By paying attention to your body, to your posture, to your heart, to your mind states, to your moods, you can start to listen. And then you maybe can answer Cecil Williams' question as you go along through the day. It's not how much love you, you get, but how much you give. The fourth is simplicity. It's a little hard to talk about in Marin County, but I'll do my best, okay? It is in a way, you know, um, and maybe in our whole culture. Where is this Zen poet, Ryokan? He says, my hut lies in the middle of a dense forest. Every year the green ivy grows longer. He's this old Zen guy. Not much news of the affairs of men, only the occasional song of a woodcutter. The sun shines and I mend my robe. When the moon comes out, I read Buddhist poems. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find the true meaning, stop chasing after so many things. What a nice poem. 
like that which we seek, which we long for most deeply in our hearts, doesn't come from so much complexity or chasing around. It really comes from from being in touch with ourselves, with with a kind of wholeness, with listening, with feeling, with with awareness. And so simplicity. And there's a beautiful and contemporary movement of right livelihood that's been sparked by Gandhi's teaching people to spin and live more simply in India. And it's been picked up by people like Schumacher, who wrote the book on Small is Beautiful and Buddhist Economics. And there's a lovely foundation called the Friends of Right Livelihood Foundation, who offer an alternative Nobel Prize each year in Stockholm the day before the Nobel Prize is offered. Not quite as much money. But the people, the people that they've had win it, and for what reasons, are just beautiful. Some of the, some of the winners in the past were... Um, let me see, where Stephen Gaskin from the farm who started his own Peace Corps, which now goes to about a half dozen countries in the Caribbean and Africa with medical services and agricultural things. Um, or uh, Mike Cooley, who is a, a person in charge of the aerospace workers at Lucas Aerospace Factory that did a brilliant thing. He got a plan together. That's very wonderful. He asked all the, all the chief scientists to look at what the military industrial factories and complex could make that would serve the world rather than destroy it. And they couldn't think of anything. Not very much came out of them. So then he asked all the people who worked for them, all the workers in the factories, and got some groups in different factories around England, and came out with a thousand wonderful suggestions of things that those factories and those skills could make that would be an alternative to building weapons. Or um, a man named Bill Mollison, who is the founder of Permaculture, which is a whole new, um, much more sensitive agricultural system that's particularly Australian, but starting to be spread around the third world. And there's a whole list of people like that who've, who've started to make their livelihood and their relationship to work somehow connected with the sense of living lightly on the earth, of living with some care or some tenderness. And it's a very beautiful thing, this quality of simplicity, of seeing that we don't need as much as we thought we did to be happy, and really looking for ourselves, asking yourself the question, what do I, what do I really, really want? Or what will I have wanted when I'm old and I look back? What will I have cared about? Or what do I care about for this world that I live in? Some sense of, of our connectedness with it. And that leads to the last of these aspects of right livelihood, which is service. And in, in some ways, the most beautiful of all. There's non-harming. There's the appropriate happiness of having and using in a career. There is growth and awareness, using our, our livelihood to awaken. There is simplicity in learning how to live lightly on the earth. And finally, there's seeing that what we do is totally interconnected with the rest of life, of discovering our connectedness and seeing that the world is entrusted to us. Somehow, it's our planet and it's entrusted. 
And Ramdas's teacher, Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, someone one time asked him what his teaching was. And he said that his whole teaching was love people and feed them. And that was all. And it's so nice at the intensive meditation retreats that I've taught so often to watch the people who come and volunteer to cook. Because they're not cooking in a restaurant in order to get their paycheck and kind of get this stuff out and get home and do something more interesting. The people come there to cook because they want to, because they like to cook, and they want to support people's practice and their, their sitting in their, their retreat. And there's so much caring. I mean, they, a, a, a pan of food goes out and there's flowers on it, or there's some decoration, or there's just there's something that's done to it. Or just the way that it's cooked, sometimes they'll just sing when they cook with it, as a way to let that very simple action of cooking, which we all do, become an expression of caring, of service. And we can do that in our work. And we can do it, there are, there are 50 little ways that one can be mindful in service. Um, in the very nice book by Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh called The Miracle of Mindfulness, it's the best book that I know on, on mindfulness in daily life, he said that his teacher gave him a whole series of little a- exercises. For example, when he washed his hands, he would recite this thing that, as I clean my hands, so too may I, may I bring a purity, a cl- cl- cleanliness or purity of heart to all the people that I meet today. Or as I, um, as I drive in the traffic, you know, may I wish well on all the other people that I meet, that I uh, pass by instead of... It's a very different relationship. And, and I've sat on buses, um, and I kind of, you know, you sit in your cocoon, you're riding the, uh, the, uh, the, the Muni or whatever, and there you are, and everybody else has got their book or their paper, they're in their little cocoon, and, and you don't want to be too connected, you know. And then I've sat there and I've looked up, and without being too obvious or hokey about it, I just start to do a loving-kindness meditation. Look around, since I'm not doing anything but daydreaming anyway, or planning, which is worse. (laughs) And I start to think, you know, may I be happy and and peaceful, whatever. And then I look around in an unobvious way. May all these people, may they be happy. And I let myself tune into them. Some are bent over with suffering and sorrow, and some are teenagers who are just kind of blooming with energy and, or, or with aggression or whatever it happens to be, and some are happy and some are sad. And just to send them a little loving kindness, may each one of them. And it totally changes your relationship to the bus. Completely. You get off that bus and it's like you, you just took a trip to India to some wonderful ashram. It's true if you do it, because you feel connected with the world and the people around you. And that's the spirit of service. It can be in giving of what you actually do, because there any kind of livelihood, as long as it's not harming, is a, is a fine one. It really is. We need it all. We need farmers. We need plumbers. God, as I've said in retreats, I'd much rather live in San Francisco with no doctors than with no plumbers. It's a very crucial thing. And we're all, we're all knitted together and we all find some, something to do for a while. It's beautiful. You can see it as, well, I do it to get through the night or the day and get my money, or I'm going to do this thing 
and awaken and serve. Even if I'm a if I I'm a plumber or I'm a or what uh, I'm something that um, may seem at first mundane, I'm going to use it to serve. And you know how nice it is to have somebody who is your waiter or waitress or at the checkout counter at the supermarket or the or the person who comes to fix your your refrigerator in your house be a nice human being who 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 cares when they do their work both about their work and about you <coughs> it just could change your whole it's like the buddha walks in and says hey i'm going to fix your refrigerator today but really i'm the buddha and um I'm just here in the guise of a refrigerator repair person, you know? And they say a few nice things to you and remind you that you can love the world around you a little bit more, or that you can awaken, fix the refrigerator and go off. What a fantastic thing. And we each have that capacity to bring that kind of light to the work we choose. Zen Master Sansanim, who now has temples all around the country, 15 or 20 different Zen centers. When he first came and he knew no one and he wanted to teach Zen, he got a job in Providence after talking at Brown University to support himself. And he was a Zen master with all these big temples and quite famous and many disciples. Wanted to teach in America. Only job he could get, didn't speak such good English, work in a laundromat, mopping the floors and fixing the machines when they broke. So there's this guy in this gray robe, bald head, down there, <laughs> cleaning up the laundromat. Students from the university would come down the laundromat and kind of see him there. And after a while, some people got curious, you know, who is this strange guy down there? And they'd talk to him. He'd say, I, I Zen teacher. You know, he didn't, still doesn't speak such good English. And they'd say Zen, and he'd say, yeah, sitting and show how, you know. And after, after a while, people started to come down and hang out in his laundromat. This is a true story. And get really interested in, in who this guy was and what he taught. And then they started to come up to his apartment, and he taught them how to sit Zen meditation. And um, he would go to work in the laundromat and leave them sitting there and so forth. And <laughs> gradually it switched around. And, and uh, over the last uh, 12 years, they're now dozens of his Zen centers and many hundreds of students. But that was a fine thing to do. It's like to do what needs to be done. And there's a beautiful whole chapter in the Bhagavad Gita on karma yoga. Let me see if I can find it. And it talks about how... Uh, I've already told you in this world, says Krishna, aspirants may find enlightenment in two different paths. For the contemplative, there's the path of knowledge, and for the active is the path of selfless action. Freedom from activity is never achieved by abstaining from action. Nobody can become perfect by merely ceasing to act. In fact, nobody can ever rest from their activity, even for a moment. All are helplessly forced to act by the movement of life. It goes on. Do your duty always, but without attachment. Do your dharma, it's called, your, your work. This is how a person reaches truth, by working without anxiety about results. The ignorant work for the fruit of their action. The wise must work also, but without desire or attachment, pointing their feet in the path of their dharma, giving their heart to it, working without attachment. Let them show by example how work is true practice. The whole chapter in the Bhagavad Gita. 
to begin to use our work through the path of selfless action. It's not how much you get that makes you happy. It's how much you give. Now, the last thing I want to kind of end with a little guided meditation. Don't move. Stay wherever you are. It doesn't require sitting up or anything. But let your eyes close for a second. Actually, just be a minute or two. And let yourself picture the place where you work. See it or sense it or feel it. Or if it's not where you work, then where you go to school, if that's what you do. Or if not that, then, then the place where you live if you don't work right now. But for most people, it will be the place where you work. And there are two questions we're going to ask. One is, how can I make this work more conscious? And the other, how can I make it more of a loving service? For the first question, in the place where you work, the Buddha or the, the Bodhisattva of awareness, Manjusri, has left a gift for you. It's a box, and you'll discover it there at your place of work. Let yourself sense it or see it or know where it is and go over to it. And when you find this gift from the Buddha of how to make your work more conscious, inside the box will be a clear symbol of something that you can do a very clear symbol of how to make your work more conscious for yourself. So let yourself open the box and become aware of what that gift is, this symbol of how to make your work more conscious. Let yourself know it or see it or sense it. And if it's not clear to you, then there's a light switch over in the wall. Turn it on. Bring a little more light into the box. You'll be able to see the Buddha leaves very good gifts for you. Just the right thing. And if you need a little explanation of how to do it, in the bottom of the box you'll find a little note left by the Buddha. Pick it up and you'll hear or see or know just the two or three words. It'll say, do you know, just what you need to learn, what this symbol stands for. Now, there's a second gift that's been left for you. And this gift, stay stay at your workplace, this gift was left by the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And it's left just at the place where you work. There's another wonderful package. And it's, it's the answer to the question, how can I make this work more of a loving service? What do I need to do? Or how can I do it? Or what must I remember? So let yourself find that gift in whatever way you need to and open this package left by the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And let yourself see it clearly. And if it's not clear, then take it over to the window and let the sunlight stream into it. And you'll see it clear symbol of how to make your work really a service of love. If you need any more information, 
look in the bottom of the box and there'll be a note again with two or three words on it that'll tell you. Explain what it is or how to use it. And then just staying inside for a moment, I'll ask you a couple or a few questions which you can just let the answers come out of your own heart. The question is, how can I begin to discover or continue to discover peace and harmony where I am at work, just where I am? And how can I begin to discover the Dharma or truth within this work, just where I am? And then let yourself finish up and gently let your eyes open and come back when you're ready. You know, you could work and treat each person you meet as somebody else to deal with in your work. Or you could treat each person as you, you meet as your brother or your sister. Or you could do what Mother Teresa does in her work and treat each person you meet as Jesus and care for them and wash their feet or love them or do whatever you do the same way that you might love Jesus or the Buddha. You can work on one day and just get through the day or the night. And you can work on another day and have each person that comes to you and each person you meet be a place where your heart really opens and where you share a, a love and a caring and a tenderness. And so I read to close this last thing which is from, again, from Don Juan. It's actually Don Gennaro, the other shaman, who's the most playful of them. And he says, Gennaro's love is the world. He was just now embracing this enormous earth. But since he's so little, all he can do is swim on it. But the earth knows that Gennaro loves it, and it bestows on him its care. And that's why Gennaro's life is filled to the brim, and his state, wherever he'll be, will be plentiful. Only if one loves this earth, this life, with unbending passion, can one release one's sadness. Warriors always joyful, because their love is unalterable, and their beloved, the earth, embraces them and bestows upon them inconceivable gifts. Only the love of this splendorous life can give freedom to a warrior's spirit. And this freedom is joy, efficiency, and abandon in the face of any odds. That's the last lesson. It's always left for the very last moment, for the moment of ultimate solitude, when a person faces their death and aloneness. Only then does it make sense. Only if one loves this earth and this life with unbending passion can one release one's sadness. So those are some thoughts or reflections on right livelihood. 
I guess the last thing to say before we have some discussion time is it's not easy. It isn't. None of these things are easy. Every step <coughs> and all the things are hard. Dealing with the world of money is difficult and responsibility. Trying to wake up in a society where most of what is taught is to go to sleep is difficult. Trying to love in a place where a lot of times people are uncaring or where they've forgotten that that's what they want to is difficult. All these things are really hard. It doesn't matter. We still want to do them anyway inside when we remember. <laughs>